Glory to Jesus Christ, and welcome to the return of Encountering the Trinity podcast. I'm your host, Steve Nichols, and joining me, as always, is Father Phil. Father Phil, how are you today? Steve, great. I'm doing well today, thank you. And um, it's great to be back uh, doing our broadcasts again after a little bit of a hiatus. Yeah, yeah, we, uh, I, I feel kind of like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, you know, of course, we didn't get any good one-liners off at the end of our last podcast to, you know, the, the all be back type thing. But, uh, but hey, we're back. Praise, praise Christ for that. Um, but uh, um, I wonder if you could start us off with a prayer. Sure. Let's begin with... Uh the great doxology to the Trinity in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, nothing that is done uh, accomplishes anything or bears fruit if it's not done in your name. And we do name you, as always, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. For so you have revealed yourself to us in the mystery of eternity. Grant us, especially with our time together, in our mouths and in the ears of our listeners with the gifts of your Holy Spirit of openness, understanding, wisdom, counsel, knowledge, fortitude, piety, and a great reverence and awe of you, O Lord. Give us what we need to see from you today and lead us always in the path of your truth. Bless all multimedia, Lord, that they may be used in your name and for no other purpose other than giving you greater honor and glory. We give you thanks and we ask your blessing on this podcast and on all those who listen to us and on us, your unworthy servants, through the intercession of Mary Most Holy and in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, um, I think first off today, Father Phil, I'd like to remind our listeners that we have a website, and that's EncounteringTheTrinity.com. And if they have a question for us, uh, specifically for you, because you are the mastermind behind this operation, um, they can contact you or myself at EncounterTheTrinity at gmail.com, or they could send us a question via Twitter, and we can be found on Twitter at MostHolyTrinity. And if they're really feeling creative, I guess they could always go to Facebook and post a question there. And we are found at facebook.com forward slash encountering the Trinity. And so those are just a few ways for them to, our listeners, to get a hold of us because we are always open to questions. And I, I think today, since we don't have any emails currently, I'd like to ask you um, uh, perhaps a, what might seem deceivingly like a, a small question to some people, but um, what what is the importance for us as Catholics and for those listening who may not even be Catholic, but uh, you know Christian of a um, you know a different denomination, maybe they're atheists, whatever it may be. But what what is the importance of what Saint Paul? just uh, can't seem to stop talking about when he uses the phrase or the line in Christ. What, how, how important to us Catholics is that? 
Well, if we had a couple of years, I'd be able to summarize it uh, succinctly, <laughs> but let's try in the uh, course of the podcast to begin, Steve, to to delve into that great mystery. Uh, two simple words, aren't they? In Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Greek, which I don't know, but I know the transliteration of it, E-N-C-H-R-I-S-T-O, on Christi, in Christ. Um depending on which uh, scholar you read, and the one I recommend, I mean, there are many that you can delve into this mystery with. Uh, Actually, there are two great non-Catholic scripture scholars, many Catholics as well, but two who powerfully grasp the depths of that small phrase from Paul. One is James Dunn in his book called The Theology of St. Paul. And then again, um, an Anglican named... um, Thomas N.T. Wright, N.T. Wright, uh, N. Thomas Wright, an Anglican bishop um, who has written uh, many books on St. Paul, but uh, a small book called What Paul Really Meant is a wonderful way into the uh, theology of St. Paul. And it's quite interesting, Steve. Um, uh, Several years ago now, I guess it's been four or five years ago, after a lifetime of not uh, understanding and, and not appreciating St. Paul, um, my, but praying to be able to. I was browsing in a uh, uh, very uh, high-profile uh, non-Catholic Christian bookstore called Erdman's Publishing. They publish a lot of Catholic and non-Catholic evangelical, uh, profoundly theological as well as deeply devotional kinds of books. They're the biggest a non-Catholic publisher in the world, I believe. And um, I just happened to be looking for some good Catholic stuff, and they, they, they put, out, put out much of it as their salespeople tell me because it sells so well. <laughs> no surprise there. <laughs> yeah. But um, out of the corner of my eye, uh, there was a title that caught my attention called The New Perspective on Paul. And I needed a new perspective on Paul, so I, <laughs> I picked up the book, and, and lo and behold, I, I must say, an entirely new world opened up to me, because this was a book written by a non-Catholic uh, who basically said that the non-Catholic world, which starting with Luther and then going through Calvin right to the present day, <clears throat> has pretty much co-opted St. Paul as their patron saint, as Luther Uh, invalidly said, uh, by faith alone, not by works, shall you be saved. And he claims that that was the theology of St. Paul. Well, not only did he change the text of Romans 5.1 to read by faith alone, since the original does not have the word alone in it, but that has become the mantra of the Protestant Reformation, faith not works, sola scriptura, sola fide. And... um, Uh, And this sharp dichotomy between good works and works righteousness and salvation by faith alone, which has then morphed into every form of low church evangelicalism uh, known as eternal security. Once saved, always saved. My ticket is punched. I'm going to heaven. (laughs) This is the this is the tawdry, cheap, ersatz, absolutely phony version of Christianity. Uh, derived, it is said, by Luther and his devotees uh, from St. Paul. Well, 
this book called The New Perspective on St. Paul, and there are many of them I've since discovered, there's a whole movement that started ironically, paradoxically, and perhaps providentially in the Protestant world saying essentially this, Luther misunderstood Paul. <laughs> surprise. And the entire, <laughs> surprise, surprise. And the entire Reformation is founded on an exegetical mistake. Well, I have always, and Catholics have always intuitively known this, and perhaps there's Catholic uh, exegesis out there, that is to say interpretation of Scripture and explanation of Scripture that makes a convincing case. But in my experience, Catholics have fairly much surrendered St. Paul to the Protestants, and we don't even have many Catholic churches named after St. Paul, since we believe at some level that the Protestants got him right. And because Many people are, like Peter himself said in one of his letters, St. Paul has many things that are difficult to understand. <laughs> I mean, Peter and Paul had a hard time understanding each other and communicating with, with each other, and they ultimately did go their separate ways because they were both temperamentally, theologically, and um, in every other way different from each other. But they did recognize the authenticity of each other's apostolic mission. So they gave, but they gave each other wide berth because they didn't like each other, basically. And um, though Paul did uh, recognize the primacy and authority of Peter, he certainly was no shrinking violet. Uh, but in any event, I'm going off on a little bit of a tangent here. Suffice it to say, that Catholics have ha always had the instinct that Luther and the Protestants have gotten Paul wrong. But a very, very powerful uh, confirmation of that has paradoxically come from the Protestant world. And beginning in 1973, um, and I heard about it even, uh, well, I heard about this, I heard the, the, the rumblings of this new perspective on Paul and I, I'm going on at some length about this because I want to set a context for those two simple words on Christo, which have always been interpreted in a very mystical, sacramental, and profoundly deifying way by Catholics, beginning in the first centuries through the doctrine of deification in the early church. But even all through the Reformation, there were counter-arguments from the Catholic side saying people have gotten Paul wrong, and the key is understanding this phrase in Christ and understanding it quite differently from the way the Protestants understand it. And I will get to that in a minute. But, um, but, it was, but it's astounding to see that modern Protestant biblical scholarship has come to exactly the same conclusion. Now, I wouldn't say that that is universally the opinion in the Protestant world, but it is fair to say, I believe, that the mainstream of Protestant intellectual firepower has now come over to what is essentially a Catholic view of St. Paul. And I and it continues to amaze. Oh, we lost you there, Father Phil. Oh, boy. But the, the call didn't disconnect, so we should be okay. 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 The uh, it's it's astounding to me that um, the um, now I've lost my train a lot a little bit. Uh, it's astounding to me that the Protestant world, uh, those who have seen this new perspective of Paul and who have bought into what I consider to be knockdown arguments for their interpretation, um, 
don't become Catholic. I don't know how you could remain Protestant once you see what they're saying about Paul since the entire Reformation was founded essentially on a misinterpretation of his doctrine of faith and good works. Um, and I heard the rumblings of this new perspective of Paul in the Protestant world when I was a student at the Yale Divinity School, which was altogether Protestant. There were only two Catholics in the entire school at the time, myself and Father Henry Nowen. And I had known him from Notre Dame as an undergraduate. And so we, he, uh, I, he, I was his student at, uh, at Yale. And uh, one of the most brilliant Protestant uh, theologians that I've ever known, uh, a Lutheran named George Lindbeck, who himself wrote many books on Catholicism and was an official observer uh, from the Lutheran side at the Vatican Council. He and I became close friends. In fact, he was my academic mentor at Yale. Uh, George Lindbeck had presented our class in 1972 with an article by a Harvard scripture scholar named Christer Stendhal called the intro Luther and the introspective conscience of the West. And what Christopher Stendhal said in this article was essentially what I've just said to you. Um, if St. Paul is interpreted as Luther did through the lens of a troubled conscience, because Luther, we know, was a very troubled person, uh, yeah. uh, very much burdened by a victim of his own, his father's own physical and emotional abuse, an extremely troubled and scrupulous Augustinian monk who could not get through the mass without thinking it committed a of mortal sins because of violating certain rubrics in the liturgy. And I mean, Luther just had had the end of it, trying to keep what he took to be the rules of the church. And when he discovered this line in Paul, the just man shall live by faith, Luther realized that his physical, emotional, and spiritual constipation was at an end because he felt literally liberated by those words of St. Paul. And he mistakenly inferred from that that therefore Catholic morality and all canon law and all of the guidelines of the Roman Catholic Church were the work of the devil that St. Paul said, it's not by works, but by faith that you shall be saved. Luther inserted the word faith alone. It does not exist. It, it interests me how he went from one extreme of the pendulum to the other. You know, you, you see that in the political world all the time where a particular party is in power and then there's this big swing to the other side and, and um, how that, that, that overreaction, I guess, of things and, um, but but anyways, uh, aside from that observance I have there, I um, I'm curious because I I, I grew up uh, Protestant, was raised um, initially Baptist, and then um, I went to an evangelical uh, church and then to a Reformed church, and so I I kind of have a, a good mixture between Calvin and, <laughs> and Luther in my background, but primarily Calvin, um, and the. the uh, what would you say to someone who, like myself, who um, came from that mindset that I've made a particular, or, or I've assented to a particular belief and I've said a particular prayer, um, so therefore now I'm in Christ, I'm saved, 
um, you know, that particular viewpoint and how it um, is very different, obviously, from the 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 Catholic viewpoint of um, well, it's it's through baptism, it's it's through confirmation, it's it's Eucharist, it's these uh, sacraments of initi- initiation that bring us into contact and and assume us up into the life of Christ. What's what do you see as the difference there? Like, wh- how would you explain that? Yeah, you're asking a big question, of course. And um, uh, Calvinism, you know, was a hardening of the position that Luther took on this very debate. Um, and it may be helpful, Steve. I think it will actually kind of untangle itself if I can just finish this new perspective, because Certainly. both Luther and Calvin come under its um, come under its judgment once it's properly understood. Uh, Stendhal and Lindbeck were both Lutherans. Uh, but I studied the Institutes of Calvin uh, quite seriously, both at Notre Dame and Yale. And um, many of the breakthroughs in understanding in Christ in a more mystical participationist way are actually coming from the Calvinist world as if a theological icebreaker has just driven through the Arctic of Calvinistic theology, (laughs) just totally decimating the large blocks of ice that started in Geneva and have spread over the the uh, and and given an Arctic freeze to the theological world of Calvinism, um, and without being too harsh, because I, I have many good Calvinist friends who have just that simplistic but extremely rigid view of what being in Christ means. And I think you'll see in a second that the new perspective has totally, not only decimated that, but totally transformed it and provides an opening for Calvinists and Lutherans alike who are open to enter into the truth of what they were even trying to affirm in their own rigid and dichotomous ways. So uh, that, that will be helpful. You know, just also parenthetically for a minute, commenting on your observation that once Luther had his breakthrough, uh, he flipped and had an extreme uh, reaction in just the other direction. If he was overscrupulous in his Catholic days, he was antinomian, that is to say, relatively amoralistic or immoralistic after he saw this line in Paul that he interpreted in the way that he did. And a great study from a psychoanalytic viewpoint that confirms that same uh, pendulum swing in people with obsessive compulsive personality disorders is the little book by a Lutheran himself, Eric Erickson who wrote a little book called Young Man Luther, where he says exactly the same thing, but uh, goes into greater depth from a psychological standpoint. And it's quite common, uh, as I know from my work 25 years in psychoanalysis with drug addicts, uh, people who are scrupulous, once they are freed from that, very often flip over in the other direction and are just as obsessive, compulsive as they ever were, but in an area that tends to bring anarchy, which is what the theology of Luther and Calvin basically did, denominationally speaking. So uh, there, there are all those studies out there, but let's put, a, put a, another peg here in this context that I'm trying to give to our readers, because once you understand a little bit of the history of this, it'll be easier to understand how the most uh, recent Catholic and Protestant research on Paul's scholarship and contemplative thinking is really bringing us back, finally, thank you God, to that patristic vision of Paul 
or maybe I should say the inheritance of the early church from Paul that was absolutely and altogether Pauline because the mission, Steve, that you and I are promoting, namely uh, the view of Athanasius and all the early church fathers, that the reason God became man was so that man can become God. The doctrine of deification, the doctrine of divinization, um, you shall be as gods, not through your own power, which was the original sin of Adam and Eve and constituted the fall of Satan. But the fact that we are destined to be gods in God is the God's honest truth, both in the <laughs> Psalms and yep. in the scriptures. And quintessentially, you see, Steve, in Paul, and this is what Paul saw in literally in a flash at his conversion on the way to Damascus. And I'll talk about that in a minute. But first, I have to say why it was possible for Paul to have that revelation and why it was possible to have that conversion, which is the exact same reason that Luther and Calvin got Paul wrong, because they misunderstood Paul as a rabbinic Jew and as a Pharisee. And the first breakthrough book on this topic I mentioned the article of Stendhal a minute ago, and Christopher Stendhal said in 1972, I think we Lutherans, now he was just opining at this point, but a book came along a year later that confirmed his intuition and confirmed it in spades and laid out a knockdown exegetical argument to prove Stendhal's point. But Stendhal's point, which really was a premonition at that time, his point was that, you know, we are reading Paul and Luther was reading Paul through the lens of a troubled individual subjectivist conscience. In other words, Luther was struggling with questions of personal guilt or, or, um, or um, culpability. And he had a guilt-ridden conscience, but a first century Jew would not have ever been as uptight about personal morality as Luther would have been or as we might be in Western civilization in the 20th century. This narrowing of the religious vision to the individual rather than to the individual as a member of the people of God being in either right or wrong relationship with the covenantal God who called us as an entire people. These two visions are so fundamentally different that you're not only comparing apples and oranges, you're comparing fruit and elephants. Uh, and <laughs> I like so, that one. <laughs> so Stendhal saw this quite clearly. A year later, a brilliant Protestant scholar named Edward P. Sanders, for short, E.P. Sanders, wrote a book that has been a monumental watershed in the history of Protestant theology, and it's called Jesus and Paul and Palestinian Judaism. And I could go into great length about Sanders' theory, but in the main, it's this. The Jewish people, including Paul, viewed righteousness before God, not in any sense the way we review re it or Luther viewed it. Luther viewed it, and we view it as having a just conscience before God, thinking that I stand worthy before God because of what I have done or what I haven't done based on some moral code somewhere. 
uh, E.P. Sanders said no first century Jew thought that at all. They, 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 they did not view the law as a way of either gaining or losing favor with God. Keeping the law was not the way that you either retained a covenantal relationship with God or, acquire, or acquired a covenantal relationship with God. God's election of Israel was altogether a gratuitous thing. And so it was by grace alone that they were brought into the covenant. Keeping the law was not a matter of gaining favor with God, as Luther mistakenly thought Paul believed. Paul didn't believe that at all. Paul believed, like every good Jew believed, that keeping the covenant was a way of expressing my gratitude to God for being brought into the covenant. And so the reason the laws metastasized from 10 to 615 by the, way, by the time Paul came along, and the reason Paul and his fellow Pharisees were absolutely zealous in keeping the law was not, as Luther mistakenly believed, to gain or retain God's favor as a private subjective individual standing alone before the dreadful hand of God at the judgment seat, but rather primarily as an expression of gratitude and thanksgiving for being in the covenant at all, and then making sure that by being in the covenant perfectly as the Savior desires, who is Yahweh, the Deliverer, being in the covenant perfectly as he desires, as laid out in the law, they could hasten the bringing into the covenant of all the other nations on the face of the earth. And so they saw the law as an instrument, number one, of gratitude, and number two, of magnetism for bringing other nations into the covenant on the base, based on the assumption that if the world saw the Jews loving God with their whole mind, heart, soul, and every one of their daily actions, they would be so attracted and edified that they would want to join the covenant as well. And so the promise to Abraham would come true through the law of Moses that all nations would come to be united to God in recommunion through the law and through the keeping of the law. So the keeping of the law was not the justification of a guilty conscience, as Luther thought, but it was rather an expression of gratitude and an instrument of evangelization, an instrument of God's gracious election for all the nations using the state of Israel as a prime example of how people could be joyous doing God's will. <laughs> well, once you have that view of what righteousness consists of, i.e. being in right relationship with God because I've been elected, what more can I do? You see, they were amplifying laws because they were continually trying to dream up new ways of pleasing God in thanksgiving for being a member of his chosen people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so Paul was persecuting these Christians because he thought these are defective Jews who through their departure from the law are inhibiting God's plan for the restoration to communion of the other nations. They're basically being bad Jews. <laughs> and so... the, law, the law itself had provided for a way of getting rid of bad Jews. You stone them. 
you get them out of the way so that the face of the earth and the image of God upon the face of the earth, which is the people of Israel, would not be embarrassed by the by the by the by the non-keeping of the law by the heretics and by the apostates. Cleanse the cleanse the cleanse the cleanse the face of the earth of the Jews who are giving a bad example so that God will have a good example to use. Also, God doesn't want ungrateful people in his kingdom. So they're better dead than not be showing gratitude by keeping the law. So Paul saw nothing wrong with it, basically. He saw everything right with it because he was trying to do this for God and to further God's purposes on the face of the earth. Yeah, so the uh, I guess another question that I have then is is you've you've kind of painted this picture of a, a kind of an extreme personalism uh, with with Luther and some of the uh, theology and, and uh, even doctrines and dogmas in the in the Protestant world that have sprung sprung and grown out of this. Um, and then on the other hand, the the the, the Catholic world. It's much more of a corporate. I mean, there's there's the both and. There's still that personal walk and a personal relationship with the Lord, but there's also that that um, definite understanding of 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 being in a corporate person. You know, Jesus is a corporate person, um, and I, I so so. I guess uh, one question that I might have though is is if I in listening to what you've said. Um, about St. Paul is, and this is what I was uh, kind of raised in, uh, the tradition I was raised in was, um, they, they uh, in fact, I'm, I'm almost certain I would have agreed with you before I became Catholic, but I would have said, well, see, then that's exactly it, Father Phil. What, I, what I've done is I've prayed the sinner's prayer and accepted Jesus into my heart. And so now I am in Christ and therefore... You know the law does not apply to me, and and I would have been thinking law as in, um, uh, gosh, any any law, <laughs> you know, Ten Commandments and everything. It doesn't apply to me anymore. I can do whatever I want, and I it's it's almost like God gave me a license uh, to sin because now it doesn't, but it doesn't count as sin though. And in fact, there are some extreme versions in Protestantism. I have a friend actually that believes that he can no longer sin. Because he's right. as Jesus into his heart, so if he if he does something wrong, it's not a sin. But if someone else does the same thing, who's not in his particular brand of religion, it is a sin. Um, and obviously, we both think that's silly, but um, you know he takes it very seriously. So I guess my question is: is what's what is the uh, the 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 Catholic perspective then, and 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 the the Pauline, the proper Pauline perspective? on that because clearly uh, to be in Christ does not mean that I can go and sin because Christ came to free us from sin. You know, and he didn't say go and sin some more to uh, some of the people that he, you know, forgave and whatnot. He said, go and sin no more. Um, so is there any way that you can contextualize that? Yes, but I hesitate to answer it at that level at this point in our conversation and in our explaining this to the folks on the podcast for this reason. To engage Paul at the level of morality is to engage him in the context of 20 centuries of distancing from Paul's world 
that did not apply to Paul. Paul did not view, even as a Jew, his relationship with God primarily in more terms. He, he viewed them primarily in soteriolo soteriological forms, uh, form, meaning what God was doing in the world for the restoration of the world to the state of paradise. So okay. Paul, Paul and every Jew thought of God in eschatological terms, not moral terms. And morality always substitutes for eschatology once a sense of the world of Paul and of the Jews and of the world Catholics still believe in. Once that sense is lost of what God is doing in history, then the focus devolves to morality and then even further devolves, as in Lutheran and scrupulous Catholics and non-Catholics alike, to questions of personal morality. But life in Christ, Christ himself, and the whole Catholic and Israelite traditions are not primarily and first of all concerned with morality at all. Morality follows automatically and almost as an unconscious byproduct from a proper understanding of who Jesus is in the life of the Trinity, who the people of Israel is in God's providential plan, who the people of God are as the, the Eucharistic Church assembled around the Lamb who is slain for the coming of the kingdom. And once all that is properly understood and my role in Christ as a member of his chosen people is properly understood from an eschatological perspective, morality takes care of itself. To lop off the eschatological, mystical, and heavenly vision of divine election and participation in the Trinity through the incarnation, once that whole patristic Pauline Jewish Catholic vision is lost, all you're left with is a sinner in the hands of an angry God, to quote, quote Jonathan Edwards, the Protestant preacher of the 19th century. So do you see what I'm trying to say? Morality and apologetics answering questions about individual right and wrong is so far downstream from the vision that allows it to become intelligible that it really becomes counterproductive to answer questions at that level without trying to bring people up to this higher level of what Paul was all about. Right, because without the proper point of view, those those you you can't possibly understand or or really see them in their in, in the proper light. Correct. It's the equivalent of trying to drive by focusing on your windshield rather than the tree in the distance. <laughs> You're sure to run into the tree, you know? <laughs> yeah. Now, you said something very important there, that, that the Catholic Church has never lost the sense of being a corporate people before it's a group of eclectic individuals. The Protestant right. Church has never right. been a corporate entity. It's well, nothing, that... been, nothing other than a continuing splintering group of BBs rolling around in a bed, bread box. You well, know, right. any... That was uh, one of the, actually, that, that probably is the hardest, the, the biggest and hardest adjustment that I had to make in my, in my psyche, really, at, at a very, very deep level. Because I, I had a mindset for, you know, 23 years of my life that was incredibly personalistic and, and you know, to an extreme. Because I, I, had no, I had no vision or idea or understanding of what it meant to be part of 
a collective, you know, what, what I, I, and, and even now to this day, I still struggle with that because, you know, when you've done something for most of your life, it's, it's hard to be freed from that and, and untangle that mess. But, you know, the Holy Spirit is working, thank God. And, uh, it, it becomes clearer for me, um, you know, as, as I, as I go on my journey, but, um, yeah, that, that, uh, and so I, I can understand now uh, when I like like you just said that it it's um it, it's uh, almost impossible for apologetics or, or other things to transpire when someone doesn't have the proper view, and I find myself in that situation all the time because I myself number one like I just said am struggling to 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 free myself into a a, a different world really. Um, and people back in that other world that I left eight years ago, when they ask me a question, again, it's just it's it's it, I I I can't even connect with them really. I have no I have no idea how to to relate something that I try to explain to them because I'm trying to explain that it to them in a context of in Christ. That's where I always start is is the understanding of what it means to be in Christ and. And it's it's like speaking a foreign language. So um, I don't know where I was going with that, but uh, <laughs> I'm just trying to say that you know I can understand I because I'm going through it myself. The you know just the 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 change and the difference is is world shattering, really. It's a miracle that any Protestant can ever become Catholic because it's it's a what what they call in the history of scientific revolution. It requires such a paradigm shift that even when you become Catholic, for whatever reason, usually based on some shoddy apologetic argument that works for a while, you're entering a world, you're entering a different world. It's like the, it's, it's the difference between Newtonian mechanics at the macro level and quantum physics at the subatomic level. They're, there, there are utterly different rules and an entirely different logic. And so to try to take one language, it's like comparing computer languages. They just don't match. You're, you're in a different world. So there are certain words that are in common, but the history and the concepts behind them are so utterly different. And this is not only true for Protestants, but our whole ministry on encountering the Trinity died is devoted the the, uh, the 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 Western world, the Western Catholic Church has come under the uh, influence of individual subjectivity and relativism in such a severe way as to make it almost even difficult, if not impossible, for the majority of Catholics to understand and begin to grasp that they are the true inheritors of the corporate vision of the people of God that Israel is in its corporate entirety. We are spiritual Semites. We are a people. And the, the people who grasp this the best prior to Vatican II were people like Henry de Lubach and Jean-Danny Lou and um, Hans-Urs von Balthasar. They saw that our identity as a Christian comes only as a member of a people within with whom God is in covenantal relationship and that we are inseparably connected to each other and that our identity in Christ is a derived identity. It's not that we 
come knowing who we are and then we acquire religion and are saved in Jesus. It's quite the opposite. We are inserted into Jesus through our baptism and over time he gradually reveals to us who we are and what our unique personal mission is within his corporate body for the salvation of the world. But this, this is so backwards and so difficult <laughs> for people to not only mentally grasp, but to emotionally even begin to impact them. That even my belief is that even after a person becomes Catholic, even highly intellectual Protestants who have seen this and have seen that Paul has a high sacramental view of participation in Christ, they become Catholic in light of that dim awareness. But then it takes them another 10, 15, 20 years to become Catholic, where the sense of being a member of a people and a people being in relationship with God and having no relationship with God other than that confected by the Eucharistic assembly. These are awarenesses that take 10, 20, three decades to dawn and sink into people. And so we are doing a very modest introductory note for people who listen to our website, trying to begin to introduce this vision to them. And the vision starts with St. Paul on his conversion on the road to Damascus. Amen. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I think we're going to have to to uh, pick this up later on because I'm, I'm looking at the time here and I notice that you've got to get going in a couple minutes here, Father Phil. But um, I, I think maybe perhaps on our next episode we can explore this a little further, this understanding. Well, I guess actually first the, the, the phrase that St. Paul uses over and over again. How many times is it in Scripture that Paul St. Paul uses in Christ? Yeah, depending on who you read, but James Dunn, the great Protestant scholar, and N.T. Wright, whom I, both whom I quoted and whose books I highly recommend on Paul, they both say that he uses it over 185 times in his encyclical, in his writings. Oh, wow. <laughs> the Catholic, the Catholic uh, Pauline scholar that the new perspective on Paul in the Protestant world uh, traded upon um, claims that Paul used this phrase 265 times in his writing to mean essentially the same thing. And as a tease, Steve, because we do have to get into this with our listeners, and I apologize for the long setup today, but it's it's crucial to get the context and the history of this of this debate and to set up the context. But as a little tease, let me just say this. When Paul uses that phrase, in Christ, because of the loss of this patristic vision and the people of Israel and righteousness as Israel understood it and as Paul understood it, um, most people following Luther have understood in Christ as a metaphorical and largely legalistic fiction a metaphor, a, a, a nice symbolic phrase to refer to a mental state of my taking Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Nothing could be further from the way Paul understood it. In a flash on the road to Damascus, and we'll visit this uh, next time on our, um, on our podcast. In a flash, Paul understood that the means for recapitulation and reconstitution of the world to communion with God was not the law as he had understood it to be, nor the keeping of the law as he understood 
but rather physical, personal union with Jesus Christ in the exact same way, but deeper than the way that Christ embraced and enveloped him in the light and voice on the road to Damascus. Well, um, and uh... so we'll explain that. Paul meant that phrase in Christ quite literally, whereas our Protestant friends and even some of our Catholic friends have interpreted it figuratively and metaphorically. In fact, he meant it in a way more profound than physically, but no, never anything less than physically. So we'll talk about that more next time. Well, it sounds like we're ending with a little bit of a mystery here, and uh, no pun intended, but that's a, a perfect way to end our, our podcast, uh, w- with a little bit of mystery, because uh, the, the mysteries are, are uh, the, the, the key to our, our Catholic faith. And I think you know what I mean by that, Father Phil. But um, for our listeners, if they'd like to ask us a question, they can send us an email, either for myself, Steve, or for Father Phil, at encounterthetrinity at gmail.com. You can contact us via Twitter at Most Holy Trinity. And on Facebook, we can be found at facebook.com forward slash encountering the Trinity. And Father Phil, if you don't mind closing us out today with a prayer. I will do, Steve. And again, I just, for the sake of our listeners, I think I noted again that our Facebook address and our website include the word encountering, I-N-G, the Trinity. But our email is simply encounter the Trinity because of domains available at the time. So just a clarification for our listeners. And thanks again, Steve, for getting it all started and getting us up and running again. And and a special thank you to our brothers and sisters, Catholic and non-Catholic alike, who have joined us uh, today for this beginning exploration of St. Paul's great mysterious phrase that he actually uses to describe the mystery of Christ. Life in Christ, not just life in imitation of Christ or life like Christ, but literally in every other way. mysteriously life in Christ. So let's finish then with the glory be to the Father. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen.